This podcast represents the views of the hosts and not the University of Texas at Austin. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with people who are and have helped shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. I'm Bill Shute, Executive Director of the LBJ Washington Center, and I'll be your host for this series as we hear from four Texas-based policy experts and historians who have framed yesterday and today's political environment. Our first episode is a conversation I had recently with Dr. Peniel Joseph, the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values at the LBJ School. He's the author and editor of award-winning books on African-American history, including the acclaimed the Sword and the Shield and Stokely, a life. Welcome, Pamina. Hey, great to be here, Bill. Hey, I really enjoyed our recent conversation at the Washington Center. And, and before we listen to that, I want to ask you a quick question to help set the table. As the title of your book notes, we continue to search for racial justice in this still young century. You draw on historic references from the post-Civil War and 20th century struggles. As a preface to our conversation, define for our listeners the key differences between Reconstructionism and Redemptionism. Great question, Bill. <laughs> Reconstructionists are supporters of multiracial democracy. And I think it's important for all of us to understand that those supporters can be of any background, color, um, or political party. So it goes beyond partisanship. It goes beyond religion. Uh, it's it's a belief that when we think about American democracy, um, everyone counts or, or, or nobody counts. So that means when we think about Reconstructionists, these are folks who believe that the dream of the founders uh, is not an exclusive dream, but it's actually an inclusive dream. So that includes people who are uh, Native folks, Indigenous folks, white, Black folks from all across the Americas, Central America, South America, immigrants, uh, but it also includes women. It includes people who have been historically marginalized, people who are queer, LGBTQIA, uh, people who are Muslims and Christians and Jews, but also people who are atheists and agnostics. So when we think about that notion of multiracial democracy, it is capacious. It means that um, everyone who is uh, a citizen uh, in the country counts and matters and should not uh, be excluded from being a member of the polity. Uh, redemptionists have a different perspective. Redemptionists are, uh, in a way, um, supporters of uh, John Calhoun. You know, John Calhoun uh, is a very, very important American figure who, who really comes up with the notion of nullification. Uh, uh, he's he's um, a Southerner. He's vice president, senator out of South Carolina, but he provides a context of sort of thinking about the United States as less of a, 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 a group that is under a federal power um, and more as sort of um, individual states who actually have veto power over what the federal government might want. So in, in Calhoun's case and in the case of redemptionists, they felt that anybody who said they could not have slavery institutionalized in South Carolina and other parts of the country forever was actually infringing upon their rights. Uh, this is a perspective 
that doesn't look upon the rights of enslaved people. It doesn't look upon the rights of, of women. It doesn't look upon the rights of uh, people who are outside of the framework of um, a white uh, male uh, patriarchal society um, as having actual citizenship and dignity. So when we think about reconstructionist versus redemptionist, um, two different perspectives. And again, redemptionist can be, Bill, any color, any background, <laughs> any gender. This is not a color-coded uh, ideology, not at all. So we have some of the staunchest reconstructionists in American history have been white, have been white men and women who are abolitionists. I talk in the book about Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens is an American hero. I know we have a lot of schools named after Robert E. Lee. Thaddeus <laughs> Stevens, one of the most important Americans um, and one of the most profoundly patriotic and heroic Americans to have ever walked the face of the earth. But we don't really have a lot of uh, statues for Thaddeus Stevens. And so it just shows you when we think about these two ideologies, even as race is at the center, people who are articulators of this ideology, uh, these different sentiments um, can be of any background, any color, any gender. I think that sets a great context for our conversation. And it's your book touches on so many great topics that I encourage all of our readers to not only listen to this conversation, but go find your book, The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Dr. Joseph and I will return at the conclusion of our recorded conversation, so let's get started. Thank you for joining us. Let me start with the book's title and its underlying premise. Now, the, the post-Civil War era Reconstruction is well-known by most Americans, and probably to a slightly lesser extent, just how perilous it was and how quickly the freedoms gained slipped away. But let's start with your definition of the second Reconstruction and the third Reconstruction, which is the topic of your book. Oh, definitely. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you, Robin, as well. Um, in terms of the Second Reconstruction, the Second Reconstruction is the heroic period of the Civil Rights Movement, um, 1954 to 1968. And when you think about that period, May 17, 1954 is the Brown Supreme Court decision, all the way to the April 4th, 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And in between, you've got the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. You've got, like, right here where we're sitting, is where um, the Freedom Riders, uh, uh, this is the former uh, uh, Greyhound Trailsways <laughs> bus yeah. station, um, where they set off in, on May 4th, 1961. Um, you've got the sit-ins of 1960. You've got 63 in the March on Washington and Birmingham and all those different events. 64 is Freedom Summer, um, where groups of predominantly white volunteers alongside of African-Americans go to Mississippi to try to erect freedom schools and um, really dig for democracy there. Um, and of course, we get Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, oh. the, the three civil rights martyrs. And then in 65, we've got the, the Selma to Montgomery march and demonstration, uh, Lyndon Johnson's famous speech on March 15th, uh, the We Shall Overcome speech, uh, and then the passage of the Voting Rights Act in, on August 6, 1965. And then 66, 67, 68, what we really see are combination, urban rebellions. Uh, we see um, the politics of backlash, right? Uh, so when we think about that second reconstruction, 
just like the first, there's going to be these different juxtapositions, both racial progress and backlash. And in the third reconstruction, what I argue in the book is that from the election of Barack Obama, really all the way to the present, because sometimes when I've done some of these talks, people uh, will ask me, uh, is January 6th the end of the third reconstruction? And I'm saying, no, it's still happening. It's still happening. And the four pivot points are really this, Bill. Um, the election of Obama and what that means for our history. Uh, it, it's, it's, we, we're we're going to have to... Um, be away from this point for another generation, I think, to really calculate how big that was. Because we lived through it. And one thing, as you know, all of us who are into history know, people who live through a time sometimes aren't the best people <laughs> to understand yeah. the time. So the people who lived through World War II, survivors, heroism, all these things, but you get a deeper sense the further your distance. It's like right now, we understand better, I think, the catastrophe of the Civil War from the view of mm. distance. You know, 700,000 Americans dying, one-seventh of the male age population. I mean, it's, it's a huge catastrophe. You know, you lose more people during the Civil War than you do these other, other wars. In terms yeah, of to that point specifically, what are the precautionary lessons that we should look back upon the, how the first Reconstruction expanses in racial dignity and racial equality, how those slipped away. What's the precautionary tale for us today? Well, I think, I think the precautionary tale today, and I'll, I'll link it to that third reconstruction, the Obama election, the rise of BLM 1.0 in 2013 after the uh, murder of Trayvon Martin, the rise of Donald Trump and MAGA, and then everything we faced in 2020, mm -hmm. all the juxtapositions of the, the pandemic, the protest after George Floyd, January 6th, but also the fact that we had a, a presidential election where more people turned out than ever before in American history. So all the good, the bad. Um, I think the cautionary tales are that when we think about January 6th, these are unhappy patterns of political violence based on race that haunt the body politic. Mm -hmm. So we've had earlier iterations of January 6th. One great example is going to be Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. So in Wilmington, November 8th, 9th, and 10th, and there's a number of different great books on just Wilmington. David Zucchino won a Pulitzer Prize for Wilmington's Lie. The city of Wilmington has done commissions really since around 2000 on trying to recover that legacy. But basically what happens in Wilmington is America's first sort of organized successful political coup right? Um, there is a duly elected government that is multiracial, black and white, and they are going to be slaughtered in an organized coup by elected officials, state militia. Some of them are advised by Benjamin Tillman, the former mm. senator and governor of South Carolina, who in the 1870s, and here's another example of these coups, had organized really a political coup in South Carolina, uh, through a group of white terrorists called the Red Shirts. And what's so interesting is that what happened with the Red Shirts, and this happens all throughout the 1860s and 1870s, is that you'll have two competing slates, a multiracial reconstructionist slate who say, I was elected, and a redemptionist white supremacist slate that says, I was elect elected. And most of the time, the federal government really, except in some cases, doesn't intercede to um, allow democracy to flourish. So 
When we think about January 6th, it's really connected to those different unhappy patterns. The, the, the last point here is that when we think about the January 6th hearings, the first such hearings are actually in May of 1871. In May of 1871, we have public congressional hearings about Klan violence in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And the Congress authorizes that investigation January 19th, 1871, almost 150 years to the day of the January 6th assault. Was that a Thaddeus Stevens move? Was that the... Thaddeus Stevens, yeah, was, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what was it happening in Washington at the time that led to this blind eye to the multi-slates between the red shirts and the loyalty lakes? Was there a resurgence of Southern power coming up through Congress? There's a resurgence of Southern power, but there's also one of the things that I think has always occurred when it comes to race in the United States, and we see it from 2020 to this point. Moments of racial progress are really met almost immediately with moments of racial backlash. I mean, almost immediately. We can even yeah. think about the Obama election. Obama's elected with the most votes in American history in 2008. By 2009, there are massive demonstrations by the Tea Party that are not just about policy. That's the whole thing, because having a disagreement with the president about policy was fine, whether the person's black or whatever. But these weren't policy disagreements when they're coming, showing him as some kind of African dictator. He wasn't an African dictator. He was an American citizen. Who Wait, was, was he American? Are we sure? Are we clear on that? Exactly. And the birther movement. The birther it movement came is at that a great same example. Time of the backlash. Yeah. And the very fact that the, the, the main articulator of the birther movement becomes the next president mm. shows you the backlash. Absolutely. Okay, so you brought up President Obama. And talking about disagreements, I have to point out in the book that you talk about this communal excitement in his election. Yeah. Now, the community really felt optimistic. But then you, you spend a lot of time talking about his version of racial optimism. You yeah. call it his special American exceptionalism. Yeah. And, and like all forms of exceptionalism, it has a tendency to kind of smooth out the rough yeah. edges of American history. Tell us a bit more about your perception of his place and how he handled that. You know, I'm a big admirer of President Obama. I think that comes out in the book. I'm, a, I'm critical, but I, I talk about how his election impacted me as a historian, as a citizen, as a person. Um, I thought it was a really wonderful moment in American history. And I think he told such a good story about American exceptionalism that I wanted to believe it. Mm. Okay? So when he was speaking in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention and said there's no red states or blue states, I mean, that sounded great. And it sounded like what, you know, if somebody could convince us all that that was the truth, maybe we would behave differently. Yeah. Right? Um, the, the, the pitfalls of that, and I think we saw it rather quickly, was the fact that not only was there pushback against his administration uh, in ways that were based on racial bias, discrimination, but President Obama a lot of times didn't realize how despite his victory, there were millions of black people, especially those who are incarcerated, um, who were on the margins, right? So sure. the, the, the American exceptionalism and that story that he told about a union constantly perfecting itself, it didn't sort of give us room to understand, like, why Breonna Taylor? Why Michael Brown? Like, why are these things happening even though we have a black president? And I think it took him, I really think it took the election of Donald Trump for Barack Obama to really see 
how the depth of really this, this story that he himself had narrated in from dream, Dreams from My Father mm -hmm. and The Audacity of Hope beautifully and brilliantly, but, but he only distilled it to a point. So he could do things like very much admire John Lewis, yeah. Congressman John Lewis. But who amongst us did not admire Congressman <laughs> John Lewis, right? But when the young people in Ferguson were saying, look, we want to protest nonviolently in the tradition of John Lewis, he told them to take it slow, yeah. right? right? So at the end of the day, even though he was a former activist, he was still president of the United States and he had those prerogatives in mind. And so I look in the book at the tension between this president who really exemplifies a kind of um, citizenship from above, which is progress, which mm -hmm. is progress, um, with BLM activists who really exemplify, exemplify dignity from below. And I want to come back to that in just a sec, but in, in fairness to him, you do point out that in your opinion, he's gone through a bit of a transformation yes, since his absolutely. two terms. Yeah, and we could see that the 2020 speech that he gives at the Democratic National Convention is such a ways away from the 2004 and the 2008 speech. He's talking about democracy being in an existential crisis, right? In 2004, 2008, and again, I understand why, because he won. In 2008, he tells, the, in 2004, he tells us that in no other world, no other country in the world is his story possible. I think that's extremely powerful. And that's, when, when he says that, and I'll tell you what he says in 2008 when he wins, but the two, the two lines of Barack Obama's American exceptionalism, when he says that in no other country in the world is my story, power, is my story possible, that, quintessentially sums up American exceptionalism. The second line is on November 4, 2008. He says to the world, and remember, he's in Grant Park, where 40 years earlier in Chicago, police had routed demonstrators, okay? And those demonstrators who were peaceful had been screaming, the whole world is watching, which becomes the anthem of 68. They weren't watching because they were proud to be American. They were watching the gulf between our democratic ideals and how we treated people, right? right? 2008, Obama makes us all watch in a different way. In 2008, in November, November 4, 2008, everybody became American around the world. Yeah. Everybody, right? So like that's, that. the, that's the high point of a kind of civic nationalism. And what he says, he says, if, 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 there's, if there's anybody tonight who thinks that the dream of our founders. Now, he's a black man who couldn't spend the night in Chicago in 1961. He's saying the dream of our fathers, our founders, is alive in our time, right? And people are screaming. There's a quarter of a million people there in Grant Park. Basically, it's the size of the March on Washington. But this yeah. time, instead of King and a social justice movement leader, you've got Obama as president of the United States. And he says, that the dream of our founders is alive in our time. He said, tonight is your answer. But he says, America is a place where all things are possible. Mm -hmm. That's what he says. Gotcha. And to have a black man say that, given our country, that's revolutionary yeah. at that moment. That's revolutionary, right? And so that vision of American exceptionalism, we were all ready to ride that train, 
Okay, <laughs> we were all ready to ride that train. And maybe if the opposition had been different, like if the opposition he faced had been the way uh, Reagan's opposition was, where they collaborated with Reagan, they did things with Reagan, right. even as they disagreed. Tim, uh, 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 as we know, um, Tip O'Neill mm -hmm. um, was an ideological opponent of Reagan, but he was a believer in American democracy. Yeah. So he worked with him. I think if that had occurred, perhaps we really all would have been just on a very specific, maybe um, enlightened vision of American exceptionalism, even though I still think that vision would have um, left a lot of people behind. But I think people would have explained those who were behind in that vision as people who maybe just weren't working it out for themselves. Yeah. I think that's an excellent analogy. And boy, a lot has changed not only since the Reagan O'Neill days, but just in the years since Obama was president. Uh, in fact, today, Wall Street Journal released a poll saying that 85% of Republican voters still believe that you work hard, you can get ahead, while only 53% of Democratic voters responded that way in the same poll. You make a point in your book, in many instances, of talking about all of the challenges that uh, blacks have faced trying to find representation, true representation, within each of the major yeah. political parties. Uh, in fact, to quote, you say black folk often found themselves stuck between a Democratic Party that loved their votes but remained eager to court white voters through policies that harm black interests on the one hand, mm -hmm. and on the other, a Republican Party that lacked the energy to even pretend to be interested in promoting <laughs> black interests. How much has the current iteration of the Democratic Party moved beyond that? You know, I, I, I think that nationally it's still there. You know, I think that nationally it's still there. I think that the Democratic Party in a lot, a lot of ways would prefer, to, would prefer to lose courting white votes rather than to win with black votes. Yeah. That's what I would say, right? Yeah. And I think that um, the big exceptions have been sort of the Obama presidency and really the Biden presidency. Uh, but I still think, and I talk about this in the book, you know, black women are the... The, the, the biggest, most loyal uh, constituents of the Democratic Party. They over, they're overrepresented as voters. Right. Um, but they're underrepresented in terms of as elected officials, still no black woman governor, um, and sort of in the supply chain of politics and power. Uh, and I think one of the biggest reasons is that the Democratic Party is still at war with itself. Because the, again, remember, this party is the party of John Calhoun, it's the party of racial slavery and white supremacy that in a way, it wasn't necessarily taken over like some people like to imagine by black people. White Dixiecrats left the party. They fled the party uh, after the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts. And they fled the party at the national level rather quickly. At the local level, like in Texas, where me and uh, Bill have deep history, uh, it took decades. It took decades at the, at the local level. So you could still have uh, a Democratic governor, um, uh, uh, you know, elected um, uh, president, Ann Richards, elected governor uh, as a Democrat, Ann Richards, as late as 1990. But by 94 and since 94, we haven't had a Democratic governor in right. Texas. So when we think about the Democratic Party, you still have forces there that are uncomfortable with somebody like Stacey Abrams, let alone Black Lives Matter. You know, Stacey Abrams is certainly progressive, but she's really not this kind of, you know, fiery uh, right. radical or, or revolutionary in that way. Um, but they still feel uncomfortable with her. So I still think that the party itself still 
is not this unfettered vehicle for the deep democracy that black people have been pursuing, um, you know, both before the Civil War, but certainly in formal legal ways since the Civil War. I'm glad you brought that up because throughout your book, you talk about and highlight the important voice of black women, not just as voters, but in the movement, yeah. at the very stages of the movements, in the different iterations, all from Ida B. Wells all the way through, right? Why was that such an important thread for you to write about? You know, I start the book, Bill, talking about uh, my mom, and, and my mom's 83 years old, and, and, and you know, my, my, my hero, my biggest champion, and um, influence. And so I was looking at the way in which my mom's stories about Haiti, about uh, uh, America, um, about black folks impacted me and all the different black women who've impacted me. I, I was fortunate to study with Sonia Sanchez at Temple University, very, very famous poet and human rights activist, um, and, and really getting into that formal spa space of black feminism and black uh, women's history. Uh, and we, you know, uh, there's so many incredibly sort of talented black women in the first and second reconstructions that do not get the kind of attention they deserve. And that's why I start with, uh, I talk about Angela Davis as somebody who, who uh, tethers together multiple generations um, through her 1971 essay on the role of black women uh, during slavery. And that pushed back against the Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh. case for national action which really is a smear against black women that at times both um, the white establishment and at times black nationalists also uh, colluded it, right? Black nationalists because of a kind of deep, deep uh, misogyny and sexism and patriarchy and, and the white establishment um, as a continued amplification of the dehumanization of, 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 black, of black women. So talking about people like Ida B. Wells and uh, Angela Davis and Stacey Abrams and Ella Baker and so many others, it gives us a different story. And I thought it was interesting that during 2020, so many people were talking about amplifying the voices of black women. Sure. Right? During 2020. Yeah. Um, some of this had to do with, it was black women and black queer women who founded um, Black Lives Matter. Some of it had to do with Stacey Abrams and, and helping Democrats get to 50 because mm -hmm. without the voting rights work that she had done, none of Biden's agenda would have been passed. Yeah. Um, and some of it had to do with just so many different black women emerging as storytellers through social media and other vehicles and telling their stories, yeah. right? I'm glad you brought up BLM because it clearly, that's the bedrock of the current struggle. I think you, you might agree that they, they had such an important role post Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and certainly George Floyd. You, you, say in the book, you describe them as Black Lives Matter told America the story it needed to hear, not the story it wanted to hear. What exactly do you mean when you say that BLM inspired reconstructionist policies from below? Yeah, you know, one of the things I say throughout the book is that we're caught in this struggle, Bill, between reconstructionist sentiments and redemptionist sentiments. And I think that continues. I mean, the struggles that we have over voter suppression, over so-called critical race theory, all these things, immigration, reconstruction versus redemptionist sentiments. And so reconstructionist sentiments are sentiments that support multiracial democracy and really support, in my mind, building what Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community, yeah. right? right? And redemptionist sentiments 
they really push back against those things, sometimes in, explicitly because of racism, sometimes it's only implicit. Sometimes people who support redemptionist politics don't necessarily connect their support for redemptionist politics with this longer history that I'm talking about. Mm. I think part of the reason of writing the book is to try to share that story so that people, even if it doesn't necessarily change their minds, they can see that, hey, I, I actually have gone this path. I'm not this advocate of the Klan. I'm not an advocate of white supremacy. But I didn't know that saying I want sort of a small government with smaller taxes yeah. actually can be used in harmful ways against these communities with a deeper history uh, to the United States and being marginalized and oppressed, sure. right? And so I think in a lot of ways, um, when I think about the story that the country needed to hear, including Barack Obama, was that there were people who were the faces at the bottom of the well, Derek Bell called them, yeah. um, who were being marginalized continuously, even after the second reconstruction, even after the election of Barack Obama. And if we truly wanted to be uh, like what President Obama had said, a place where all things are possible, we actually had to center um, their dignity and their citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, you know, what BLM and what the third reconstruction is about, certainly I, I look at black people as, as central, but this is something that helps all people and all Americans. I mean, when you look at the Reconstruction Amendments, ending racial slavery, birthright citizenship, the Equal Protection Clause, voting rights eventually helps all people, right? So the whole thing about black citizenship and dignity is that if we ever achieve that, we really um, impact the entire society, including immigrants, including, and that's why I say BLM, their cutting edge bill was really teaching, I think all of us, that all black lives matter, which is why the whole notion of focusing on women, focusing on queer folks, yep. focusing on trans, just the whole deal, disabled people, it's hugely important because, you know, either we all count or none of us counts, right? And I think them imparting that lesson, again, it's not what we wanted to hear. And I'm saying including some black folks, right? Because it, mm. it all depends on where you are in this superstructure. If you're doing fine, you might not want to hear, hey, I got to help out homeless people. I got to do this or that. And you're saying, hey, I worked really hard for mine. So this is, yeah. I think BLM pissed a lot of people off, irrespective of race, right? By the time there, I remember in 2020, one of the things I recount there, and I found this really amusing, but I remember people getting very upset, where they um, protested at people's brunches, right? This oh, is predominantly right. white people. I love brunches. that part. And people, people were apoplectic. They were like, you're yep. breaking into my brunch? Yep. <laughs> to talk about black life. And I was like, yes, like that's where we're at, right? Like, like you know, you, you, you're breaking into people's brunch and they're like, this is sacred. I don't want to talk about social justice. I want to have my eggs, my brunch. Yeah, that's, that's where, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, and it does tie into a, an excellent point you make that none of this would have been possible without that civil rights activism during the second reconstruction. Absolutely. So, so how much have the legacies of Dr. King's racial dignity approach and Malcolm X's racial equality approach, how much of those have been incorporated into the modern struggle? I think from 63 to 2013, we get a rough racial justice consensus. And King's notion of citizenship, Malcolm's notion of dignity, Lyndon Johnson's notion of a great society, Kennedy's new frontier, all of that is hugely impactful. What they do is give us an imperfect racial justice mm. consensus. And I put it down as from June 11th, 1963 to June 25th, 
2013. June 11th is uh, President Kennedy's racial justice speech yeah. that's broadcast uh, in the aftermath of um, the desegregation of University of Alabama. And June 25th is the Shelby Holder decision yeah. that really basically ends the, the voting rights, Section 5 preclearance of the voting right. rights. That 50 years, that's the most important 50 years in American history, I would argue. And the reason I argue that is that 63 to 2013 year, that 50 years is an era where you get the most, not just black, but uh, Latinx, uh, Asian American, Pacific Islander, uh, indigenous uh, women, female, um, uh, political, economic, cultural power in the United States, ever, in the history of the Republic. And empirically, I know I'm right, so I'm not going <laughs> to get into, into a debate with people over that. 63 to 2013, that group of people that I just mentioned enjoy the most wealth, status, access, not just going to the polls, Bill, but getting access to homes, mm -hmm. becoming CEOs, being in higher education, right, right. Um, than they ever enjoyed in the history of the republic. Obviously, obviously, the high point there is Barack Obama. Because sure. we had never had a black president. Just like when we finally have a woman president, that's going to be a high point. Because we're going to be like, this didn't ever happen before, and this yeah. is changing how we are. Well, how many boxes society. did Kamala Harris check off? Right? And K Kamala Harris. But 2013, I would argue the reason why we're in such a rough patch is that we're living in a post-consensus period ah, during the third reconstruction. Because I think the, 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 the attack on voting rights is an attack on the very idea of citizenship and dignity, not just for black people. It's important for us to remember, when Trump talks about um, Mexican rapists, this whole idea is this otherizing of a whole bunch of groups, but it always starts with black people because anti-blackness is the organizing principle of the racial mm -hmm. caste system in the United States. But we have to remember, it includes anti-Semitism, and that's on the rise. And I would connect the anti-Semitism, the anti-Asian hate on the rise with Trumpism. That's what people have to understand. Nobody is safe. That's what people don't understand about this. They, when, when, they see you, when you see people picking on immigrants and you think, oh, well, I'm safe, I'm not an immigrant, I'm gonna show you, wave my flag. No, they're coming for you too. They're coming for you too. And like I said, they're, they're anti-Semitic. So people who might be Jewish and are sort of passing, they're gonna come for you too. They're, gonna, they're coming for all of us in that sense. And that's why, that's the difference between redemptionism and that story and reconstruction. Okay. Important point to make, absolutely. In the time we have remaining, I, I do have one last thing I'd like to <laughs> talk to you about. Uh, I'd like to refer to a passage from the introduction. You say, in many ways, the music I listened to evolved as I became more aware of the violence, poverty, and yeah. racism that scarred my neighborhood. You described the cultural relevance of hip-hop. You described the, the personal impact of Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Right? In a... a post Trayvon Martin, George Floyd era, what are the, the cultural touch points? What are, what are the lenses that a, a black elementary school age child will look back upon 20 years from now and remember? Oh boy, I think that's a great question. I think it's a combination of music, um, social media, movies, uh, but certainly, you know, my youngest daughter is seven and certainly, you know, the, the iPhone and the little things that they watch and the videos, but I think music is still a big part of it. Um, it's gonna be hip hop. I think they have more access to art than somebody like I mm. did at that age because of social media and Instagram. 
We see um, the black artist who did the presidential portraits and different yeah. things like that. But there's, there's um, so many different um, sort of cultural milieus and it's, it's a potpourri uh, that is happening. Even something like the new Viola Davis movie, The Woman King, that wasn't around when I was younger. That's incredible. Like, so sure. somebody who's of age, I think that's PG-13 to see, that's gonna have a huge indelible uh, impact on them. So I think it's, it continues to be music and movies, but I also think protest has become a, a big, big yeah. part of young people's um, DNA. Uh, young people, irrespective of race uh, and background, uh, because they've seen it in the air. Just like I think one of the biggest impacts of Obama, and I say it in the book, was um, that he was president for eight years. The, the, the young people, some of whom I teach, uh, who remember his presidency, uh, they were really invigorated by that presidency, irrespective of race, right? Mm -hmm. and, and he, for some of them, normalized a kind of uh, black excellence that before had really been almost um, relegated to the point of being a fantasy. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know, we used to have movies about black presidents. Uh, 1972, um, James Earl Jones, The Man. Um, there was also President Palmer yeah. on 24, 24 and Morgan, Morgan Freeman and like sort of Deep Impact yeah. and others, right? And so, but it was almost like a fantasy. It was also like, it was like, this is never gonna happen. So let's just make the president black. It started to become a trope, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And then when and, and often secondary to the main Secondary to the main yeah. character. Right. But then when it happened, it really impacted so many people, right? So in some ways, Obama's biggest impact was how he changed the narrative of American democracy. And I think, I think Trump represents um, an effort. I don't think it's successful to negate that impact. Fantastic. Welcome back. In the interest of time, we opted not to include the audience questions in this podcast, but I'd like to revisit one of them, Daniel. One of our audience members was preparing to become a history teacher and asked you how she might teach her future students the stories you relate in your book without completely abandoning the American history she was taught as a student. Tell us your answer. To her question. Well, you know, I think that she should, um, and we should all be teaching the beautiful and bitter parts of American history. So I think teaching about racial slavery and reconstruction um, allows us to talk about American heroism and resilience uh, and belief in each other and belief in democracy. People risk their lives to aid those who were trying to struggle for citizenship and dignity. Um, I think we have to talk about the, the uglier parts as well, so we have a context to understand how fragile democracy actually is and how we're always in the act of self-creating and co-creating that together. So I think we can talk um, and share a, a redemptive story of America while still not ignoring um, the darker parts of our past because those darker parts are the impulses we're constantly struggling to confront. And this has to do um, not only just with the issues of slavery, but I think when we think about the Second World War and Japanese internment camps, uh, we think about the Second World War and uh, Roosevelt, who's such an important president, not um, really, uh, really believing the stories he heard about um, Jewish genocide and anti-Semitism in Europe quickly enough. Many, many more lives could have been saved, right? 
but then we can also talk about the heroism of American soldiers in the Second World War, right? Uh, so we can talk about all these different things simultaneously. I don't think we should be focusing on just the bad, and I don't think we should be focusing on just the good. We have to braid that story together because that is the story of us. So I think in these hugely hyperpartisan times, uh, what people get wrong is focusing on just either all bad or all good. The true story of America is a mixture of both of those, even up until this day. Well put. And finally, what motivated you to write this book at this time? You know, it's a combination of good and bad. It's a combination of my mother and the lessons my mother uh, taught me. Uh, my mother's 83 years old, Haitian immigrant. I moved to New York City in 1965. And I was born in New York City in 1972. And um, it's a combination of those good lessons that I was taught about both American history, about um, the American presidents my mother loved, John F. Kennedy and, and, and Bobby Kennedy, um, but she also loved Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. Um, so that was the positive. And then really the negative was really the, the what happened in 2016 and, and uh, the, the election of 2016 and the way in which, um, honestly, events like Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia, and these marches with tiki torches that really threw us back uh, to over a century earlier um, um, really had me wanting to investigate Reconstruction and these three periods of Reconstruction and, and why did this keep happening and how could history provide lessons for us to really overcome this moment? We are both uh, at the Johnson School uh, of, of, of Public Policy, uh, both in Austin and D.C. And I think President Johnson's greatest legacy is the ability to aspire uh, further and higher and faster and farther than anyone. Um, and this idea that the country was this aspirational country that could be a great society. I think indeed, you know, I don't think there was ever a, a better um, aspirational goal for the United States than what Lyndon Baines Johnson set out to do and, and create a great society, which he said was also a good society. And we were going to be kind to each other and we couldn't exclude each other. and We, we shouldn't be violent with one another. Um, so President Johnson, you know, in a lot of ways led the way there. And I think, um, uh, you know, I think that that's what I wanted to recover by looking at those three periods. I think that uh, we can be a great society and you start being a great society by being a good society. And I think we we have always had good people in the United States. Sometimes our government doesn't reflect the goodness of the American people. And I think what led me to try to write this book is to think about how could we be such you know a nation filled with good people going through such a difficult time uh, after the 2016 election? And how could we really get that redemptive narrative back that we had seen in the 1960s bring us all together under difficult times? Well, I think you do a great job with that. You know, the book is very insightful and a, a very good read. Thank again, you. Uh, the, again, of course. And again, the title of the book is The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Thank you for joining me here and with our conversation, Benil. It's been a delight. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed it. And thank you all for joining us on this podcast. Come back to join me and our other historians in the coming weeks. For more insightful episodes of Policy on Purpose, please visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. 
This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.